Well, this morning I want us to continue with our study in 1 Timothy. And as we look at, continue to look at 1 Timothy 1, uh, starting with verse 16, uh, this is sort of part of uh, the series that we started a long time ago. We haven't done it here recently, uh, but uh, because you ask, that question because you ask. And this question comes up quite, quite often uh, as we're doing a, a study and, and, and giving people an opportunity to ask different questions. Uh, they'll say, well, what did Paul mean when he was writing to young Timothy that in him first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Was he saying that Christ had never been long-suffering uh, before? And we know the answer to that is God has been long-suffering ever since Adam uh, took a bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God has been long-suffering and forgiving and, and patient. So just exactly what, what is Paul mean? We, started, we got started in that last week, and I want us to continue uh, with that study. As far as I'm concerned, I believe that that scripture is clearly teaching that Paul, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the one we read about last week, breeding out slaughter and threats, hauling men and women uh, who believed that Christ was the Messiah, that this Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus became the first member of the church, the body of Christ. He was the first saved under this present dispensation of grace, uh, even though he knew nothing about it. That's why after he was saved, he goes into Arabia for three years, and God teaches him, uh, reveals truth to him. And then it's a, it's a progressive revelation as the Lord Jesus gives him the revelation of mystery. And so here we have the Apostle Paul clearly stating that in me first, and the word first there is protos, well, which has to do with in order, first in order. Uh, but even if that word protos meant uh, uh, chiefly, as, as the word above, uh, above that verse uh, means, uh, foremost, uh, the next phase of that, the next part of that, clearly defines what he's talking about here, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. See, I believe that we take the scripture and we believe it, we accept it for what it says, we don't try to make it fit our theology, we don't try to make uh, our, uh, the scriptures fit our theology, we make sure our theology fits the scriptures. Understand what we're saying. That he is the first to be saved under the unprophesied, hidden God the Father, never revealed in scripture the plan of God to offer salvation by his grace to all who believe that Christ died for their sin, was buried, and rose again. In other words, to believe the gospel. Paul was the first one 
were of that body made up of Jew, believing Jew, believing Gentile. Prior, God was dealing with the nation of Israel. Uh, John 4.22 tells us that salvation is of the Jews. The Gentiles' position before God, the Gentiles' uh, blessings that were to come from God depended on the nation of Israel. Christ said, I came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What did he mean by that? Well, salvation was of the Jews. God's prophetic program, God's plan to redeem man had to do with Christ going to the cross, absolutely, shedding his precious blood, being resurrected, and then being Israel's promised Messiah and the blessings that were to come upon Israel were to overflow to the Gentiles. That was the prophesied program all through the Old Testament. Scriptures makes that clear. But the Scriptures tell us that Christ came into His own and His own what? Received Him not. And from the Scripture, with their rejection, the next prophetic event was the tribulation. It was the time of Jacob's trouble. It was to be the day of the Lord, that tribulation. That Daniel 12, 1 says it's going to be a time such as never, a time of trouble such as never been before. In Matthew 24, Christ repeats that, talking about that tribulation. Well, what we find from the, the Apostle Paul, that revelation that was given to him was that there was going to be a joint body made up of believing Jew, believing with the resurrected Christ as the head of that body, that truth, truth was never prophesied. God was dealing with, with Israel and his plans for Israel and plans for the world concerning his blessings to come upon Israel. But there was something hid in God, something that had never been revealed in what God had planned from before the foundation of the world, how he was going to save fallen man. Not based on a covenant relationship with a people, but by his amazing grace. And that's what this leader of the rebellion found on the road to Damascus as he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a pattern. See, it's it's either what I just said, that that pattern was the pattern of grace where God just reached down and said, uh, presented himself to Paul, and Paul believed. And first things he said is, Lord, what do you want me to do? He recognized that he was Lord. What would you have me do? It's either that or as a pattern means that if all of us want to be saved, we need to take a trip and go from Jerusalem to Damascus. Or we all need to uh, go out and get believers and bring them and haul them to jail. We all need to be blinded with a great light prior to getting because That was the pattern there. That's what was going on there. It's not what that's about. When Paul says as a pattern, what we find is God's grace. Uh, the nation of Israel had rejected the Savior, had rejected the Messiah. They had said, we will not have this man to reign over us. 
And so here we have God in His infinite mercy and in His grace saving the chief of sinners, the one who was leading that rebellion. God saves It's what it says. And it's always uh, dumbfounded me how that folks try to make the Scriptures fit their theology rather than their theology fit the Scriptures. They, the Scriptures may say things clearly and and without question, yet we try to make it say things differently because we have a different theology. I say let's take the Scriptures for what they say and believe them and allow the, the Holy Spirit to direct and lead our lives. Um, let me give an example. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Share two different scriptures with you that gymnastics around in order to make make these truths fit their theology. Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight. Acts two, verse thirty-eight. And I can't tell you how many sermons I've set in on. Listen to pastors, speakers do mental gymnastics trying to make this verse say anything and everything but what it really says. And I guarantee you, you're gonna, it's going to be confusing to you if you don't rightly divide the word of truth. If you don't approach it in light of the dispensation that it's for, then you're not going to understand it, and you're going to be doing things that you should not do, believing things that you should not believe. Acts 2, verse 38. Well, let's start with verse 37. Now, when they heard this, you need to remember this was Peter letting them have it for crucifying the Lord Jesus. This is Peter. He, he is standing up, and he is uh, letting them have it. Now, when they heard this, and, and what that, this is, is the, hey, you know the one that you crucified? You know the one that you, you killed? The one that you hung on a cross? He's alive. He's alive. That's going to shake you up, right? Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Who are the we? You men of Judea, you men of Jerusalem, you men of Israel. What should we do? Notice that it does not say, What should we do to be saved? You know why? They already had a relationship with God. They were His covenant people. They already had that inroad to God. Many of them were all... They, they were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, observing the day of Pentecost according to what God's revealed Word told them to do. These, these people already had a relationship with God. And part of God's prophetic program, according to Joel chapter 2 and Joel chapter 3, was the coming of the day of Pentecost when the, 
where the empowering of God was going to be poured out. The Holy Spirit was going to, to be manifest, and there were certain things that they that had been prophesied that would be going on. And sure enough, that's what's about to happen. Verse, what, what must we do? When they heard what Peter was telling them that they had done. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That empowering of the Holy Spirit, that which was the promise of the Father. You need to repent. Repent of crucifying Christ. See, John the Baptist had been coming and preaching the baptism of repentance for going on three years. Maybe even a little bit longer. He had been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king was there. The Messiah was there. The kingdom was about to be offered, but before that promised kingdom of what Israel longed for, prayed for, hoped for, the promise of the Old Testament scriptures considering, concerning someone to sit on David's throne, ruling and reigning in righteousness in Jerusalem, that promise was about to be realized and when there was something that God's people needed to do, they needed to prepare for that. They needed to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know who else came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? The Lord Jesus. It was time for that revival, for that awakening for Israel to become born again, if you will. They had been born out of Egypt, but they had gotten so far away from God. It was time for them to recognize their Messiah, that Christ was their Messiah, to believe that He was the Messiah. Scripture prophesied that He was going to die on the cross <laughs> because the kingdom could not be offered until the Lamb who was slaughtered. He couldn't be resurrected in order to establish his kingdom unless he died first, then would be resurrected. Then he would return. All of those promises are there. And the scriptures are clear. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. But I can't tell you how many groups will say, well, our salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should be boast. So they'll quickly tell you that baptism does not save. And you know what? They're right. For this present dispensation, baptism does not save. But this was a requirement for Israel. But people jump through all sorts of ho hoops. I've heard them say, repent because you've repented. Because now you've been saved, now you need to be baptized in order to show an outward demonstration of an inward change. And I go, boy, that is beautiful. But what is that verse in 
What's the scripture on that? There's not one. Well, but what baptism does, it, it demonstrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And I go, oh man, that's even prettier. What, what's the scripture on that? It doesn't exist. It's not that. See, that's man-made wanting to work around this verse and not accept it for what it's actually saying. Water baptism was required for the nation of Israel in order to become what? The nation of priests. Thank you. The nation of priests. In order to be that blessing to the Gentiles that God had said they would become. But people, they, 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 they just want to take that verse and make it fit their theology that, well, because it clearly says, repent and baptize every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Israel, you men of Judea, you men of Israel, you men of Jerusalem, you, if you want, your sin, you want to be forgiven, then here's what you need to do. You need to be baptized. Mark 16, 16. Mark 16, 16. And we clearly teach and preach our theology today is that water baptism does not save. Works do not save. What saves? Believing that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And don't even come to me about easy believism, because I'm telling you, that's exactly what salvation is. It's easy, but it was difficult for Christ. The work was placed on Him. And what God in His infinite grace and wisdom, and in order to show us how much He loves us, and how much He desires men to be reconciled to Him, He took upon Himself all the hard work and the torment in order for us to be saved in this present dispensation. And the truth of that was given to this leader, this chief of sinners, as God saved him away from Jerusalem, away from the twelve apostles, away from the covenant of Israel. See, the church is not spiritual Israel. The church is not spiritual Israel. The church is the body of Christ. Separate entity. But look at Mark 16, 16. This is the Lord Jesus. What does he say? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Can it get any clearer? I mean, if, if the scripture that we're by grace we're saved through faith and not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, it could be argued that water baptism works. And even repentance is a work, by the way. The book of Revelation calls it the, the first works. What were the first works? Repentance, baptism. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Believe what? Verse 15 tells them, and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, as you study God's word, 
What should be your first question that pops up there? Which? Gospel? Which gospel? Because there were two gospels. Actually, more than two. There's only one saving gospel for today, by the way. So don't, don't leave here saying that preacher says that there's, there's a, a lot more gospels. Uh, scripturally, you have to distinguish between the gospel that we proclaim and preach today, the good news of the grace of God. Salvation comes by believing that he died for your sins, was buried and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 2, and 3. Paul declares what that gospel is. Here, the good news had to do with what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Um, Turn to Matthew 24. I wasn't going to get off on this, but I am. Because I think we, we need to make sure this is cleared up. Look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Look at verse 13. And if you've been going here very long, you've probably heard this a gazillion times. But it's so important that we understand. Matthew 24, verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end. And what are they talking about here? Tribulation. He that endureth until the end the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So Christ is talking about the gospel of the kingdom. Now how do we know there is a difference in the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the grace of God which we proclaim? Because scriptures pretty well tell us it is. Um, look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 5. Start with verse 5. And by the way, we probably won't get into the sermon topic since we're getting into this. So you just have something to look forward to uh, as we talk about what's not God's will. And I'll tell you now ahead of time, it's not God's will that uh, any, any man be lost. It's God's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And what we're going to get into next week is God doesn't elect some to be saved and some to damnation. That God's offer of salvation is to all who believe. That doesn't say that all are going to be saved. We know they're not. But, uh, but we'll talk about that next week, more than likely. Unless the Lord comes. If he comes, I'll see you in heaven. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles. Oh, why? Because salvation is of the Jews. Christ says in Matthew 15, I came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To understand the gospel of the kingdom, you've got to understand that the salvation that, were to, that was to come to the, all the world was coming through the nation of Israel Christ told them, it's, first of all, Israel has to be saved. They have to become that nation of priests. And I'm going to show you one of the things they had to do to be a nation of priests. I'm not going to leave you in suspense. 
Go not into the way of the Gentiles. And why is this important? Why is what I'm getting ready to tell you so important? Because every person here is a what? Gentile. You need to take this personally, okay? Christ is telling them, don't go into the way of all of you. Don't do it. There was an order. There was a plan. There was a process. And into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As you go preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were a Jew and you were waiting for the Messiah, you were longing for the Messiah, that's good news. That's great news. That's glorious news. The kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet stays, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And Christ says in verse 16, I'm going to send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And as you go, preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Then he called the twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over the devils and to cure diseases. Well, we just read uh, uh, the same account in Matthew chapter 10. Now we're reading the exact happening in Luke chapter 9. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house you enter into, there abide and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against, against them. Verse 6. As they departed, they went through the town preaching What were they preaching? The gospel. Matthew 10 tells us what they were preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here we know they're preaching the gospel. Well, yeah, they went out preaching the death, burial, and resurrection. That's interesting and wrong. How do we know that's wrong? Look at Luke 18. See, they went out preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get ready. The Messiah is here. The Messiah, he's alive. The Messiah, the Israel's hope, the hope of all nations, he's here. Look at Luke chapter 18. 
Verse 31. Luke 18, and this is a trick question. Is Luke 18 after Luke 9? I'll give you a hint, yes. Luke 18 is after Luke 9. Folks, this is what the Scripture is telling us. We need to follow the Scripture. We don't make the Scriptures fit our theology. We make sure our theology fits the Scriptures. Look at verse 31 of Luke 18. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. And he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spit on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Look at verse 34. And they understood none of these things. So are you telling me that they went out preaching the gospel and not understanding any? They didn't. What had Christ just told them that was about to happen to him? The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't understand it. The gospel they are proclaiming, the gospel they're preaching, is not the same gospel that you and I have been instructed to teach concerning salvation. The good news is that it's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by His mercy He saved us. It's by His amazing grace He saves us. We don't have to wait for Israel to get right with God. Because God's invitation is whosoever will, let him come. And what God revealed to the Apostle Paul was that there was going to be not a nation, but a body made up of believing Jew, made up of believing Gentile. They are going to be placed into that body by what? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't leave here thinking that we don't believe in baptism. Because we do. We just believe in spirit baptism. And that takes place the moment by faith you place your trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit takes you and He, according to 1 Corinthians 12, He baptizes you into the body of Christ where He wants you. That baptism is an identification. It is a spirit baptism. It has absolutely nothing to do with water. It has everything to do with God doing what He said He was going to do. Israel, on the other hand, being the nation of priests, had to have something else done. Real quick, look with me to Exodus. 19. Exodus chapter 19. I know this is a lot of scripture. Good. You just can't have enough scripture. Exodus chapter 19. Start with verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed... And keep my covenant. Who's, who's the Lord talking to here? Talking to Moses, and he's telling Moses to tell, take this message to whom? Nation of Israel. Nation of Israel. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure 
unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. You're going to be a priestly nation. Look at Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Look at verse 6. Isaiah 61, 6. Who was Isaiah a prophet to? Israel. Okay. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. Is Isaiah talking to the church, the body of Christ? No, it was still hid in God, not revealed until it's revealed to the Apostle Paul. Those marvelous truths. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. And you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. Boy, if there was one more verse similar to that, we'd kind of get the point that Israel was to be God's nation of priests. Look at Isaiah 66. Look at verse 21. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. So Israel is to be God's nation of priests. Israel is to be God's nation of priests. Was there a ceremonial cleansing? Was there a washing that was absolutely imperative under the law that priests have done? I'm glad you asked that. Look at Exodus 29. The whole chapter is about the consecration of priests. Verse 4. Exodus 29, verse 4. People, this is important that we understand as we rightly divide the word of truth. Understanding these, these distinctions. And Aaron and his sons, thou, and Aaron and his sons, you shall bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. There's a ceremony of cleansing. Look at Exodus 30, verse 20. Exodus 30, verse 20. And when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. And when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash in their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. There had to be this ceremonial cleansing in order to prepare them 
to take on the priestly duties. Look at Leviticus. This really wasn't going to be on baptism today. But look at Leviticus chapter 8. Look at verse 5. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is a thing which the Lord commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Can I give you one more? Look at Numbers. So we've had it in Exodus, we've had it in Leviticus. Boy, if we have it in Numbers 2, preparing Israel to be that nation of priests in the wilderness. Look at Numbers 8. Verse 5. Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 8, starting with verse 5. Numbers 8, verse 5. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, the children of Israel and cleanse them. How are they going to cleanse them? And thus shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them. Sprinkle clean water of purifying upon them. And let them shave their flesh and let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. That was a ceremonial cleansing that Israel's priest had to have done in order to be that priestly nation. You ever wondered why so many of the Jews came to John the Baptist at the River Jordan, presenting themselves to John as he preached the baptism of repentance? What was preparing the way? John the Baptist came preparing the way for the Messiah, making the way straight, preparing. That is such a critical, important, necessary point that we need to understand. Look at Ezekiel. I think it's 36. Look at Ezekiel 36. Yeah, Ezekiel 36. Start with verse 22. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen wherever you've gone. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the Gentiles, which you have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen, the Gentiles, shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the Gentiles and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. Verse 25. Wow. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols will I cleanse you see that's what John the Baptist was doing 
Look at Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3. And then we'll get started with the sermon today. Matthew chapter 3. Start with verse 1. And in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Preparing to be what? God's nation of priests. Reading that, can you understand when they asked Peter, Sirs, what must we do? What did Peter say? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That was in keeping with all the prophesied program. Baptism, water baptism, was an exactly, it was an absolute imperative for the nation of Israel to identify as that nation of priests. By the way, somebody says, Christ didn't need to repent of his sins. No, he didn't, because he was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. What was his office? What was his position? High priest. He's high, he's the high priest. By law, what did they have to have done? That water baptism, right? So Christ comes to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, I, I can't baptize you. And Christ says, John, go ahead and do it in order to do what? Fulfill all righteousness. The Lord Jesus could not have claimed that office of high priest had he not gone through that ceremonial cleansing. Because had he not been water baptized, what would he have just done? Broken the law. And had he broken the law, guess what he could not be? Your Savior. Your Savior. See, it fits. So water baptism was important. So when Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians and says, Christ did not send me to baptize, folks, you've got to understand the enormity of that statement. But to preach the gospel, and he's going to identify that gospel. In Ephesians 4, he talks about there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we find out what that one baptism is. That's the spirit baptism. That's what takes place the moment a person believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They realize they're a sinner. They realize they're lost. They realize that they can't save themselves. They realize they need a Savior, and God is one through Jesus Christ. And by faith, they believe God saved them 
He redeems you. He sanctifies you. He justifies you. All of those are the works of God. And the Holy Spirit takes you and places you into the body of Christ. All the places in the Pauline epistles where it talks about being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's referring to being in the body of Christ. How did you get there? You got there by that spiritual baptism. And that wasn't any work of your own. That was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to preach, going to be talking about what is not God's will. I promise. As we talk about that salvation that's offered to all, including you. And I hope this morning that you know Christ as your Savior. The most important decision you'll ever make in your life is by faith trusting Christ, realizing uh, you can't save yourself, and realizing that God the Father went to such extreme measures in order to win your salvation. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's a free gift. There are no works involved. What a Savior. Amen? What a loving God. And then He begins His work in our lives to mold us and shape us, to conform us to the image of His Son. Let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning. And I just thank You how the Holy Spirit moves and works. Father, I pray this morning that there was someone here that needed this clarification, that needed to see the Scriptures. Father, just pray that you will use your Word to glorify your name. Father, we're thankful this morning that your Word will not return into you void. We have that promise. Father, our heart's desire is to preach your Word in truth, never in error never to confuse. Father, our heart's desire is never to make the Scriptures fit our doctrinal position, but make our doctrinal position, our theology, fit your Holy Word. Help us to be the students you would have us to be. And Father, again, I pray if there's anyone here that's never trusted you, that this will be the moment in the quietness of these moments to say, yes, Lord, I believe. And become that new creation that we have in Christ, that we are in Christ. For it's in His name we pray and ask. Amen.